thing, the organist was up there, and I was texting Tom Askell about meeting Joe for the first time. I sent him a picture. He says, two old friends and faithful brothers. We have a joke about this. I said, he's playing the organ. Then Jim said, that's you. So I'm up here. So last night afterwards, a few of the ladies came up and said, I felt so bad for you. I just wanted to run some tissue up to you. Two or three of the guys came up and said, dude, you're in Mississippi. That's why you have two sleeves. (laughs) Okay, I have two lectures. One this morning, one this evening, part one and part two, entitled New Covenant Theology Progressive Covenantalism, and the threefold division of the law that I have a colon space, views, critiques, proposals. I have entitled this lecture, what I just read, and then I will assume my audience is at least somewhat familiar with what New Covenant theology is and what progressive covenantalism is. I'm going to give a brief definition of progressive covenantalism so, so, and they're very much related. I like to say one's more academic and in the institution, academic institutions, especially Southern Seminary, and then the other is, is not in the institutions yet, <clears throat> though it tried to get in there, and at some point, the more academic guys said, you know what, we want to distance ourselves from some of the bad things that fringe New Covenant guys have said uh, in the past. So I'll be quoting advocates of both New Covenant theology and progressive covenantalism, stating that they reject the threefold division and why. We reject it, and, and here's a reason why, or reasons why. I won't be giving all the reasons why. I wrestled with whether or not to name names, because it's not about persons, it's about proposals, it's not about individuals, it's about ideas, not about dudes, it's about doctrines. Uh, and I was told by the powers that be here, go ahead and name the name. So if you get offended, it's not me. It's Thomas. Whatever he is. <laughs> Brother, name all the names. You know. So I'll provide brief comments along the way as I quote them. And in the second main section, I'm going to offer a critique of their stated views by showing from Scripture how and why the threefold division comes from Scripture. So I envision the first part is going to be just, what are the, why, do, why do they deny it? Or do they deny it and why? And then read a list of, comment, of quotes and then interact just briefly with them. And then the third section, this will be second lecture on this subject tonight, I'll try to show, I think they're wrong based on how the scripture unfolds. And then I'll give some brief proposals for a way forward. Now, some of the tenets of both New Covenant theology and progressive covenantalism concerning the law of God are held by others outside of Baptist circles, which makes this subject an even more important one upon which to be informed Fifteen years ago or so, I got an email from a student. I think he was uh, from New Zealand or Australia, but he was a student at Westminster Seminary, Pennsylvania. And he says, 
New Covenant theology infiltrated the faculty here at Westminster Seminary. I'm going, what in the world is he talking about? How can that happen? They have a confession of faith. And so he said, you've got to address the issue, which I, I haven't, but it's very interesting. I'm going to quote a Sydney Anglican, an Anglican from Sydney, um, who's published a book, Paul on the Law, Keeping the Commandments of God. You'll find, if I get to my notes, you'll find out how ironic the subtitle is. Paul and the Law, Keeping the Commandments of God, because he says Christians, they were never under the law, so they, they're not supposed to keep it. They're supposed to fulfill it. There's a difference between keeping and fulfilling. You know what I call that? I, I was sitting there thinking, you know, that's like atomistic, hyper-lexicography, some sort of uh, fallacy, right? It needs to be in D.A. Carson's book. The only problem is D.A. Carson agrees with that kind of thinking about Paul and the law. By the way, there's something common with most of the men I will quote their, their, their expertise, their niche in theology is, guess what? New Testament, okay? Or, or even more focused, Paul. And when you read those books by New Testament scholars who write them on Paul and the law, they're reading with these blinders on. They're not... In other contexts, they say, we must interpret Scripture canonically. That is, taking, take, take, take the forest... Uh, with us when we interpret the trees. The whole canon helps us interpret one part of the canon. But then when they address issue, this issue, it doesn't seem to me they do justice to us. So what do they say? How do they deny it? Do they deny it? And why? From my reading of New Covenant Theology and Progressive Covenantal Proponents, there is a consistent denial of the doctrine of the threefold division. The law of Moses is a whole... And when the covenant with which it is connected goes, the law in its entirety goes. Now, if you were listening really carefully last night, John Owen kind of says that, and I think particular Baptists kind of said that, but they distinguished. So let's consider some examples, and I want you to notice the rhetorical power of some of the quotes. Not all the quotes. Some of them have more rhetorical <coughs> oomph to them. This first one does. Now, if Tom uh, Askell was here, I, say, I would say, Ernie is a Reisinger and John is a Reisinger. And I don't know what the joke is, but there's apparently a joke. But we'll just call him John Reisinger says this. This is from his book, In Defense of Jesus, the New Lawgiver, which was actually published in 2008. It was a bunch of Internet articles before that. And it was a response to my 110-page book, In Defense of the Decalogue. This is from page... 325, a 325-page response to a 110-page book. It's like, and he said things in there I never said in the book. He said, I believe certain things I never claimed in the book. Every time someone uses the term, the moral law, I'm tempted to reply, I assume by the moral law that you mean the opposite of the immoral law. I didn't write that. <laughs> I think this is one of the reasons John Riesinger's rhetorical pungency at times, um, is probably why some of the more academic guys said, let's get another, t another name, another tag. I understand the opposite of moral is immoral in the normal use of the word. A moral act is the opposite of an immoral act. A moral person is the opposite of an immoral person. However, theological usage of the word moral differs from normal usage. 
Theologians have created a new and unique use of the word moral in order to justify a preconceived theological position. They have made the opposite of moral to be ceremonial and civil. Then, without biblical evidence, they use the three categories created by this new definition to divide the entire moral law into three kinds of laws, excuse me, to divide the entire law of Moses into these three kinds of laws. They insist that the law of Moses can be divided into three distinct lists, the moral law list, the ceremonial law list, and the civil law list. He continues to attempt to prove his point by quoting a 2002 edition of Webster's Dictionary committing an anachronistic fallacy, right? If you want to use a dictionary to help define moral law, where should you go? To the book that Mike didn't bring. (laughs) To Muller's dictionary that's dealing with 16th and 17th century theological terms and phrases that are used or assumed by, that you could have sold 15 or 20 copies by now, uh, used or assumed by our confession of faith. Instead, he goes to a 2002 Webster's edition, commenting on Westminster Confession of Faith 19.3, where it says, commonly called moral. Riesinger says, every time I read the phrase commonly called in the confession, I want to ask, commonly called that by whom? None of the confession's commonly called things is ever mentioned in the word of God. If any had been, the framers of the confession or their heirs would have quoted texts. What the confession really means by commonly called is this. This concept is, me- this concept is essential to our theological system. We do not have a text of Scripture to prove it, but theologians use this phrase all the time. By commonly called, we mean is used all the time by theologians. Another quote, this statement, commonly called moral, is the sole source of authority that theologians today use for dividing the Mosaic law into three lists. Do you hear that? It's not the Bible. With less rhetorical pungency, but to the same end, A. Blake White, I think Blake White ministers in Texas, seems to be a dear brother. He is a Southern Seminary graduate. He says this, while we agree that some verses can be safely classified as moral, ceremonial, or civil, we find it unhelpful and, more importantly, unbiblical to do so. Now, I find that very interesting. While we see that some verses can be safely classified, not just classified, but can be safely classified as moral, ceremonial, or civil, we find it unhelpful and, more importantly, unbiblical to do so. It just seems like that's not clear to me. Are they... Can they safely be classified as that? And if they can, based on what? He's going to say, well, not the Bible. Then we shouldn't safely classify them that way if we don't get our authority to do so from the Scripture. One looks in vain for any biblical evidence for these classifications. Furthermore, all that God commands is moral. Full stop. See what he just said? All that God commands is moral. So I'm going to say, we can't have a conversation if we're equivocating on the terms, if you're making the term mean this, and throughout the history of at least reform thought on this, it means that. Furthermore, all that God commands is moral in the sense that it would have been immoral for an Israelite to dis- disobey any command of God regardless of its classification. 
Was it immoral for Israelites during the Babylonian captivity to not obey certain of the laws in Moses? It was impossible for them to do so. Did that add to their guilt? I don't, I don't think so. Conditions changed for them, right? We want to get our theology from the text, not impose our theology onto the text. With our threefold division of the law, we believe that advocates of covenant theology have imposed a man-made grid onto the text of Scripture to make it fit their theological system. So it's, it's no longer we're doing polemics toward and against each other based on our view of the Bible, but they have a theological system. That's, that's their source of authority. Covenant theology divides the law up into three parts, moral, civil, and ceremonial. While we see how some commandments could be classified as moral in nature as opposed to civil or ceremonial, New Covenant theology denies the tripart division, tripartite division of the law because the writers of Scripture do not make such distinctions. The threefold division has no biblical basis. Although this tripartite distinction is historically rooted and held by many men more respectable, and learned than the present writer, it must be rejected. This distinction simply will not hold up to exegesis. It is a theological construction imposed on the text of Scripture. Everything God demanded from Israel was moral. I have to ask Dr. Renahan's question. When does this session end? Noon-ish? Okay. Uh, plenty of time. In a, in a book published in 2013 by Gary D. Long, I believe Dr. Renahan's going to interact with some of Gary Long's writings. Did he go to be with the Lord recently? This is, yes, he did. So his book was uh, titled, um, I have it down here someplace, New Covenant Theology, Time for a More Accurate Way. Now, this is 2013. Very interesting subtitle. Time for a more accurate way. So what he does is he says, look, we've said some sloppy stuff as a movement, New Covenant Theology. Let's tighten our language on certain things. And I found his book the best or the most historically informed uh, of the more popular New Covenant uh, writers that I have read. He denies the threefold division of the law. So check. New Covenant Theology. However, he does make a distinction between what he calls absolute law and covenantal law. Did you know that? Okay, yeah. <laughs> Which, this, time for a more accurate way, this is one of his pr proposals. And I think it's a move in the right direction. Dr. Renahan and I have been using more traditional language, moral and positive. He uses absolute law and covenantal law. I think he basically means the same thing. I found his book to be the best written and most historically and theologically informed book. He argues in there as well, this is not for this conference, but this is a freebie. I won't charge for this one, okay? Um, he also argues for, he doesn't like the terminology covenant of works, but he argues for a covenant of works. And he, and he says there are several reasons, at least two reasons that I can remember. One is, Romans 5, the way Paul does the Christ, Adam-Christ uh, thesis and antithesis kind of thing, 
um, requires obedience unto life. The reward of obedience is a quality of life that Adam didn't attain to, that Christ attains to for us. So he does it in federal covenant context, Romans 5. And the other was Hosea 6, 7, like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. He took that as looking back to the Genesis narrative, and the first Adam was likened the first um, Adam was likened unto ancient Israel. By the way, was Israel an Adam, a corporate Adam? Maybe, I think so. Was Israel the son of God, a corporate son of God? My son, my firstborn. Was Adam a son of God? Adam was. Adam, we could call Adam the protological son of God, Israel, the typological son of God, and then Jesus, the eschatological son of God or something like that. So he proposes this covenant, uh, absolute law, covenantal law. Here's what he says. Biblical law may be rightly explained under two distinctive categories, the absolute law of God and the covenantal law of God. God's absolute law, his unchanging law, individually and personally binds all mankind by virtue of their being created in the image of God and, of, and regardless of dispensational or covenantal distinctions. Wow. But God's covenantal law covenantally binds only those who are in the covenant community according to the terms of the covenant in force at a specified time within redemptive history, to realize in its absolute sense God's law is ethically and morally binding upon all mankind forever. But in its covenantal sense, God's law is only binding upon a covenant community so long as that specified covenant is in force. Long's formulation, as we will see below, is similar to the moral positive distinction held by confessional Reformed Christians. I, in my book, Getting the Garden Right, I commend him for that, and I encourage uh, other New Covenant guys and progressive covenantalists to go read him and to further work out the entailments of what he's arguing and Look at the bases in Scripture from which he's arguing these things and come to a full-orbed understanding of the covenant of works unto eschatological life. Um, by the way, did God prefer, offer eschatological, a quality of life to Adam he did, not, he did not have by virtue of his created status? Did the covenant of, was the covenant of works eschatological? Did it, is there eschatology in the garden before the need for redemption or soteriology? You say no, you, do not, you, you disagree with Gerhardus Voss. If you say yes, you agree with Gerhardus Voss. So what, what he does on the covenant of works, if they took that, the method whereby he argues for the covenant of works, he looks at the Genesis narrative and he says, does the Bible comment on that, that narrative at all? And does the Bible draw out entailments from the narrative, theological issues that are pregnant, that are there in the pregnant narrative that's not 
fully explained to us. Do narratives have more meaning to them than just what's being narrated? Is there theological truths that are in play in narratives that aren't explicitly stated by the narrator? Sometimes that happens, right? So he looked at subsequent revelation, and he saw that subsequent revelation often makes explicit what is implicit in antecedent revelation. And in the covenant of works issue, it caused him to, I think, do better than the previous um, New Covenant, writing New Covenant theologians. If he applied the same thing to the Sabbath, guess what would happen? They'd be at our conference this week. So uh, I think Long's formulation is, uh, it goes in the right direction. Now there are some in our day who do not use the denominator New Covenant theology, but also deny the threefold division of the law. Most of the men I will now quote have at least one thing in common besides denying the threefold division of the law, and that is this, I already mentioned this, most are New Testament scholars. Now I have a footnote, does anybody want me to read the footnote? Whenever, when I, when I, whenever I say that, always say yes, because I'm going to read it anyway. <laughs> I have a question, now let me make that statement again. Most of the men I will now quote have at least one thing in common besides denying the threefold division of the law. Most are New Testament scholars. Here's my question. Could this be an example of over-specialization which leads to myopic interpretation? What do you think, Dr. Renhan? He says, amen. Over-specialization, not specialization. He, he has his specialties. Did you know that Dr. Renhan's specialty is concentrating on, focused on, the scope of your labors is the second London, right? Outside of Scripture. And the only classes he teaches at RBS are connected explicitly and directly with the Second London in its exposition, right? Wrong. He teaches a course on preaching, preaching the Psalms. So he's a specialist, but I don't think he's... We've got to be weary of over-specializing, because what happens is, I think what you see in some of these statements, these men include, um, you know, giants in our day, at least Tom Schreiner, I think, is, uh, Jason Meyer, have you ever heard of Jason Meyer? Is he a Southern Seminary graduate? I'm not sure, but wasn't he at John Piper's church for a while? And he's not there anymore. He wrote a book that B&H published, B&H Academic Publisher on the Law of God. Very frustrating book to read. I read it. Stephen Wellam, huge figure uh, in our day. And Dozen says many wonderful things. All of these men identify as progressive covenantalists, and there are others. And the book titled Progressive Covenantalism, the uh, subtitle is Charting a Course Between Dispensational and Covenant Theologies. When John Reasoner came on the scene and, and him and some of his comrades started defining new covenant theology, it was basically that. We're going to chart a course in between the two extremes. On the one hand, you have covenant theology. On the other hand, you have uh, dispensationalism. So in that book, they parse what they mean by progressive covenantalist in these words. The word progressive seeks to underscore the unfolding nature of God's revelation over time, while covenantalism 
emphasizes that God's plans un, God's plan unfolds through the covenants and that all the covenants find their fulfillment telos and terminus in Christ unquote now there's is there anything that jumps out as like heretical there to anyone doesn't sound bad sounds kind of good i don't want to deny that uh the unfolding nature of, revela- of, of special revelation over time, that's, uh, that's in our confession in chapter 7, by farther steps. Okay, slowly but surely, progressively but organically, God reveals the plan of the covenant of grace or salvation. And I don't want to deny that that plan of redemption comes through the special revelation of the, you know, the Bible's doctrines of the covenants, and I don't want to deny that all the covenants find their fulfillment, their telos, and their terminus in Christ. If you were last night, you know that I think the incarnation, sufferings, and glory of Christ is a big thing. It's so big that God gave us a Bible about it. Why do we have a Bible? Sin is God has a plan of redemption. So what does the Bible do? Tells us the plan of redemption. What's the target, the scope, the goal, the bullseye? of all of special revelation, Old and New Testament, if you ask somebody, what, why do we have a New Testament? They would say Jesus. And I'm saying, why do we have an Old Testament? Jesus. It's the written word of God that communicates the plan of God through the covenants of God, consummating in the incarnate sufferer and the one who enters into glory. By the way, who was the first sinner? Adam. What did he fall short of? All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. When the Son of God incarnate comes on the scene, he describes himself in accordance with the twofold motif of the Old Testament. Sufferings, glory. Sufferings, third day resurrection. Did our Lord, according to his human nature or divine nature, sin? No. What did he not fall short of? Glory. He must have attained that state of existence, according to his human nature, that was proferred to Adam. That's why I said the garden was, covenant works is an, is an offer of eschatology. He went eschatology before sin. You can get it now, Adam. And he said, no thanks. He snatched after God. That's an old Puritan. So who wants to deny that definition? I, I think it's good as far as it goes. But of course, they're going to parse it out different than we do. Here's what uh, Dr. Schreiner says. The distinction between the moral, ceremonial, and civil law is appealing and attractive. Even though it has some elements of truth, it does not sufficiently capture Paul's stance toward the law. Now, that comes from his book, 40 Questions About Christians and Biblical Law. That came out in 2010. I did read the book. He has another book that came out early, Paul and the Law or something like that. And some of it is really insightful and really helpful. He's always insightful, you know, and always helpful. Um, but like one man said, we must thank God for those who say wrong things because it helps us crystallize in our minds what the right things are. He would say the same thing about some of the things I write to, I'm sure. He says it's helpful. Some elephant elements of it are true, but it does not sufficiently capture Paul's stance toward the law. I'm not even sure 
the threefold divisional law came up to answer the question, what is Paul's stance toward the law? Matter of fact, I'm pretty certain I could say this. I'm absolutely certain, right? The doctrine of the threefold division doesn't, didn't come about to answer this question, what is Paul's stance toward the law? The doctrine of the threefold division of the law came about to answer this question. How does the Bible describe itself in terms of this progressive revelation? Um, how does the Bible describe itself in relation to law? Well, the big era is the Mosaic era, right? So the next question is, what does the Mosaic era do with this concept of law? Well, it has this thing that we call moral, this thing that we call ceremonial laws, this thing we call judicial laws. Ah, so by the time we get to Paul, we already got the grid. Why? Because the grid's there prior to Paul's writings. And I think you'll see our Lord and Paul, if you take that with you, um, respecting that. By the way, one time I, I was listening to Dr. G.K. Bill. You might have been there. He said, during a Q&A one time, a student said, Dr. Bill, what exactly is new? in the New Testament. And he said, not much. Not much. We all laughed. And I kind of, I, I liked that. Like, I mean, there's fulfillment, but the fulfillment is rooted in something that's already said, right? There's transformation, but something's being transformed into a new redemptive historical era. Jason Meyer, while discussing threefold division law, says this, the New Testament itself does not make these three distinctions. And no one living under the law of Moses seriously thought they could pick which parts are binding and which are optional. They had to, when they were in uh, exile, right? One will find... Uh, now, he made a face. Let me read that again. The New Testament itself does not make these three distinctions, and no one living under the law of Moses seriously thought they could pick which parts were binding and which were optional. Who says that? Give me a citation, you know. Here's John Gill or Matthew Poole or, you know, somebody arguing that, oh, the Jews under Moses could pick and choose which ones were optional. This has a little, that has rhetorical pungency, doesn't, doesn't it? It's like, if you don't think about what's being said, you could go, that's right. One will find it challenging to divide all the laws into three neat, watertight compartments. Who does that? If you just read the Westminster family of confessions, you'll see some of the ceremonial aspects have something of a moral thing connected to it. Matter of fact, if the judicial laws have some sort of general equity that is of moral use, even the judicial laws are kind of, I think the old guy said, mixed. There's a principle of perpetuity from which this case law comes. So they're not neat, watertight compartments. I was reading one of them that said, you can't grab three felt pens of different colors, read the Pentateuch, and then have a you know, the threefold division of the law comes right out in living color. And I would say, well, of course you can't, because that's not what the doctrine means by what it says. In a chapter titled, 
progressive covenantalism and the doing of ethics. Stephen Wallen says the following about the threefold division formulation. A direct equation is made between the Decalogue and eternal moral law and a general hermeneutical rule is followed. Unless the New Testament explicitly modifies or abrogates the Mosaic law, as in the ceremonial and civil parts, it is still in force today. This rule becomes the, that's italicized in, in his article, chapter, this rule becomes the principle by which moral law is established across the canon. Excuse me. I guess if I was British, I would say part of that, okay, and the rest of it's rubbish. I was shocked when I read the chapter. I had to send a text to a friend who was a student of Wellam, uh, and I said, have you read this chapter? He said, yeah. I said, I, I'm thinking it's not very good. He said, it's not good. It doesn't, number one, reflect the confessional position, and number two, I think he gets himself in, into a Trouble, and, and you'll see in a minute there. He says that progressive covenantalism rejects the tripartite distinction of the law as the principle by which moral law is biblically established. Okay, so the confessionalists, the 1689 confession, the Savoy, the Westminster, argues this. The principle by which moral law is biblically established is the tripart division of the law. Okay, true or false? False, right? You've been here long enough. What is the basis, what is the foundation for the moral law? A tripartite division way over here in the Mosaic economy, or this is the beginning, or God, God who gave it, God the creator, and the act of creation, and the constitution of the effect of the act of creation, man the image of God, along with this law, this principle thing written in his heart. So he says this more than once, and I kept reading that going, who, who, who put the italics in there? Because you know what the italics are indicating to me? This is really important. Since he said it two or three times, I took it. He, he means he really thinks this, and I thought, who does that? The confessions don't do it, and I don't think Scripture warrants anything like that. So I can see why, if that's how he understands the threefold division, as the principle by which moral law is biblically established, well, I would disagree with that too. He claims that circumcision, food laws, gleaning laws, and so on are all moral laws. Yeah, when I read that, I thought, okay, although I appreciate a lot of what the progressive covenantalists are saying, um, they haven't shaken all the new covenant theology stuff because that, that's what Blake White, John Riesinger, they said the same thing. They're using the same terms. They're infusing them with different content or meaning. So it's not a fair playing field now. Again, covenant theology, he says, determines what is morally binding upon Christians by appealing to the tripartite distinction of the Mosaic law. Let me say that again, because I, I disagree with this. 
Covenant theology determines what is morally binding upon Christians by appealing to the tripart distinction of the Mosaic law. If you want to know, it's from Progressive Covenantalism, page 216. Agreeing with Douglas Moo, now, ecclesiastically, what is or was Moo? Does anybody know? E.V. Free. Was he your professor when you were there? Did you take any classes from him? Oh, okay. Um, So, agreeing with Douglas Moo, he usually writes in evangelical books as the Lutheran position on the law which is weird to me because he's not Lutheran. Agreeing with Douglas Moo, Wellam cites him as follows, our source for determining God's eternal moral law is Christ and the apostles. Now, who wants to disagree with that? Christ. What do you want to learn about God's eternal moral law? Christ. That sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Christ is the telos, the goal, that to which all that the Old Testament was pointing to and... and Let's keep going. Our source for determining God's eternal moral law is Christ and the apostles, not the Mosaic law or even the Ten Commandments. Then Willem says, this fact helps make sense of why Christians don't do or keep the law. Instead, We fulfill the law due to Christ's work and the power of the Spirit. Now, obviously, that's coming a little off of Romans 8 uh, and also Romans 13. Love fulfills the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. But what's interesting is there are commands stated, like in Romans 13, and then the love command of neighbors seems to be... um, a summary of those other individual commands, but according to Wellam here, by the way, he's leaning on Brian S. Rossner's Paul and the Law, Keeping the Commandments of God, where Rossner denies that Christians are to keep the law, they're to fulfill it. He makes a distinction between the two, but the subtitle of his book is Keeping the Commandments of God. I found that kind of weird. By the way, I read that book too when it came out. I started reviewing both of them after about 15 pages of probably eight font back then, uh, of review data, I got tired and never finished either one of them. I did finish the books, though. So let's read that again. This fact helps make sense of why Christians do not do or keep the law. Instead, we fulfill the law due to Christ's work and the power of the Spirit. In a footnote, he points readers to a discussion in this book by Brian Rossner, <clears throat> excuse me, published in the IVP New Studies and Biblical Theology series. Rossner is a Sydney Anglican. In the section referred to by Wellam, Rossner argues a distinction between keeping the law and fulfilling the law. What did I call it earlier? A hyperlexical, atomistic fallacy of some sort. Rossner says, Paul is to be understood as fulfilling the law is different from keeping it. Rossner again, according to Paul, while Jews transgress the law, Christians do not, and I think they would say cannot, because they were never under the law. Then you can read John Reasoner, and I think even Wellam uh, says this. I know he does. 99.9% certain, but I didn't put it in here. Christians are no longer under the law. And yet, Rossner says, 
Jews transgress the law, Christians do not. Why? Because Christians are in no sense required to keep the law. The law is something the Jews were under. It's not something that the Gentiles were under in any sense whatsoever. In Meyer's contribution to progressive covenantalism, Jason Myers, he pushed back on Rossner a bit. This was interesting. This happens, you know, when you have a book with 10 contributors, there can be some disagreement here and there. So one thing that Wellam says, this is good from Rossner, Meyer says, eh, I'm not so sure. It's in a, it's in a footnote, but it's, it's there. I found it. So th- this is good, okay? So they're not just going, oh, we're, Wellam likes, you know, Rossner, so I'm going to like him. R- Meyer is, well, actually, Meyer wrote first. Wellam should have read Meyer, and then maybe he would have backed off a little on this statement. Here's, here's Meyer's contribution. Here's his pushback. He says this. Paul seems to describe obedience to Exodus 20.12 in Ephesians 6.1-3. True or false? Honor your father and mother, Exodus 20 and 12, is repeated explicitly by Paul in Ephesians 6. Okay? Is that, do you think the Ephesian-believing children of probably Christian parents should keep that commandment? Or full? Fill it. <laughs> Circumcision is nothing. Well, whatever. You know the rest of that. He takes this as an exception to Paul's normal pattern of not prescribing the Christian's behavior with reference to the Mosaic law. So here's what Meyer's saying. Well, what... What Rossner said has to be qualified because it sure seems here that he's just telling them, keep this commandment, kids, obey this law of God. Uh, it's the fifth commandment. By the way, it's the first with a promise. It's the first, I think, in a series with a promise. What's the series in which the fifth commandment occurs in a series of commands, The first, it being the first with a promise? The third commandment has a threat uh, and a promise, but it's different, I think, than the fifth, would be the Decalogue, right? It's the first commandment in a series with a promise where it occurs in a series with other promises so that it can be called the first with a promise. Anybody that knows the Old Testament, I think, would immediately say, well, that's the Decalogue. You can read uh, Warfield's article on, on this where he argues for the perpetuity of the other commandments prior to it in the series as well. Here's his pushback, Myers. He says, Rossner does not see this text as an exception, Ephesians 6, as an exception to to his rule. His rule is, Paul never says, keep keep any commandments from the Old Testament. He would deny the prescriptive nature of Paul's appeal. Rather, he thinks Paul's appeal to the commandment of the Mosaic law, not as law, but as, I didn't write this, okay, advice concerning how to walk in wisdom. He says it's in Paul and Law, page 208. I don't have my copy of that book, but if I did, I'd probably have, what in the world are you talking about? Are you even a... I'm sure he's a, a, a Christian, but your you're learning is driving you mad or something. Open the lenses wider. Quit doing this and reading N.T. Wright and reading, and reading you know, the other Anglicans that are sloppy on all this stuff and, 
And open your, open your eyes to a wider canonical view and go listen to some of the reform guys. They kind of dealt with this stuff before. They might have something that you can learn from. He says this, this distinction is difficult to maintain. I, this is Meyer. I prefer to see it as an exception to Paul's general pattern. So I, I like that. He pushed back. He said, look, come on. You can't read this equation. Keeping and fulfilling are two distinct things and read Ephesians 6. There's too much, too many gymnastics, you know, mental, intellectual gymnastic, word study gymnastics you got to prove there. At some point, your people are just going to go, Pastor, you're wrong. <laughs> that's, a, that's, an unnecessary, that's a distinction without a difference. You don't need to do that. It's okay. You, we need to qualify. We need to understand redemptive historical shift that occurs through the greatest event that's ever happened so far, the incarnation, sufferings, and glory of Christ. So let's go back to Wellam. He says, Scripture does not appeal to a tripartite division of the law as the, italicized, basis for determining the moral law today. I find the words, the moral law today, very interesting. Did did that jump out to you? Watch this. Let me read it again. Scripture does not appeal to a tripart division of the law as the basis for determining the moral law today. Now, if you haven't read New Covenant Theology proponents or New Progressive Covenantalists, that might not jump out to you. But here's why it jumped out to me. Because quite often, when you read them and you say, what's the moral law? They say, well, what text are you speaking from? Because the moral law is a dynamic concept constantly being added to. Revelation is progressive. God's character is revealed progressively. Therefore, the moral law is revealed progressively. And I'll rain on my own parade and quote Tom Wells, who was a friend of mine. He's absent from the body, present with the Lord. He says, in fact, I don't think we'll know what the eternal moral law of God is until we're in the eternal state. Unquote. So when I read this, Scripture does not appeal to a tripart of division of law as the basis for determining the moral law today. I read dynamic moral law theory, constantly growing, changing, and being added to. I find the words, the moral law today, very interesting. This entails, oh, I should just read the notes. Huh? This, is, this entails a dynamic, dynamic, dynamic view of moral law, changing in its content as redemptive history unfolds. I'll address this issue, I think, tonight. It is of vital importance. It's so hard not to tell you why it's of vital importance, but he's already given you a sneak preview, and I won't say what he said. Some of you might be following along. Why it's so important to deny a dynamic view of moral law. In order for Christians, then, he says, to determine what God's moral law is, we must apply all of Scripture in light of Christ. God's moral law is not discovered, as covenant theology teaches, in an a priori manner, that is, by isolating the Decalogue from the law covenant and then applying it directly to us. I don't try to do that. I don't know if I've read anybody who tries to do that. Rossner, in his Paul and the Law, asserts that the threefold division of the law is anachronistic, impractical, and unsuccessful. Anachronistic, that means 
We're over here in the 21st century, or they were there in the 17th century, the Confession of Faith. And they are, they are using their theory and they're imposing it back on something temporally prior to it, namely, primarily, the Old Testament. So he says, this is all anachronistic. It's impractical and it's unsuccessful. There's a book in honor of G.K. Beale, For the Life of Me. I don't know why they included the chapter by D.A. Carson where he basically shreds Philip Ross's book, three, uh, uh, The Threefold. What's the name of that book? From the Finger of God, which is, I think, very helpful. He overstates himself a few times, and I get it, but D.A. Carson, and he was one of your professors, puts his finger on it, and at one point he just says, this is all too tidy. It's just too tidy. So it's, it's anachronistic. It's impractical. It's unsuccessful, is what Rossner says. Now, from the quotes of the New Covenant Theology and Progressive Covenantalist adherents above, it is obvious that, on the one hand, they deny the threefold division of the law. That's pretty clear. And I'm... We should be grateful. They're very clear on that. It's not that they're unclear. But on the other hand, at least one prominent New Covenant theologian makes a distinction between absolute and covenant, covenantal law. I applaud him for it. That was Gary Long. I think it's a move in the right direction. I think he has a better hermeneutic that he's using to help interpret Scripture in light of its wholeness, the whole canon of Scripture. But this is a very minority view, as far as I can tell, though an encouraging view and a move in the right direction. Unfortunately, he won't be able to tease that out anymore. And uh, he's happy that he doesn't have to, because he's happy in Jesus, apart from his body and present with the Lord in heaven. So from the cited examples, it is safe to say that New Covenant theology adherents are not the only ones in our day that deny the threefold division of the law. Uh, We're Baptists. We're studying the Baptist Confession. I didn't take the time to mine out some sloppy statements by contemporary Westminster Confession of Faith theologians. My gut tells me there's more than will make me happy. I'll be very unhappy if I did that study. Because it is out there, sloppy statements by otherwise good men, uh, and they should, I think, go back to their confession, and the documents behind the confession that helps give the proper lens to understand the confession properly, and I think they tighten up their language. So all I wanted to do here is, is to show you how dumb my opponents are, and how intellectually superior Dr. Renahan and I are over everybody at this conference and all other conferences. I tried to be fair. You know, sometimes my half-Italian stuff kind of takes over. Um, I hope I didn't slander these men. They don't affirm this doctrine very clearly. They have their reasons, more reasons than I stated. They don't have horns. They're not, they don't have a tail. They don't have a cape. You know, they don't prowl around like a lion. They're not the devil. Uh, But I disagree with them. I think they're wrong to deny the doctrine and the reasons they deny it. And I think in many cases, this just doesn't sound good. They don't even understand it in the first place. You can't deny what you don't understand. I mean, you can can 
try that, but you're not denying the thing because you don't understand the thing as the thing that it is. So what I'm going to try to do uh, is give a brief critique of their denial, their, their reasons for it, and a biblical justification. That will be tonight. And then I have three proposals to help us as confessional Baptists, confessional Second London Baptists, and primarily the progressive covenantalists, um, a way forward that we could have a conversation and, and get farther in our conversations. Because uh, I think they're, I know they are, they don't want to do the fight and fundy thing that used to be done by, I think, some of the New Covenant guys, some of the older guys got into that. By the way, Tom Wells helped me with that very thing. I put my finger on that. He said, you're exactly right. There's a fighting, fundy attitude among us. And I said, well, I don't want to, I'll fight, but not like the fundies. Let's fight sweetly. In sweet compliance. To the law of God and the gospel. So that's what I'll do tonight. I'll pray and then I'm finished. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness toward us. This is um, a different kind of an exercise. We're just looking at what uh, other brothers in Christ Jesus, who we affirm as godly and useful men, what they say, why they say it. Please help us not to be haughty, not to perch ourselves up as the answer to everybody else's problems we're not. That is only found in the skull crushing seed of the woman, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the son of David, the branch of Jehovah, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is revealed to us in both the Old and New Testament, so help us not to lose sight of that. But we do want to engage them. Please give me the patience and the grace and an even temperament to address these issues in a Christ-honoring way so as not to produce in my hearers um, warriors who are out to slay others. Um, we ask for your grace uh, during our break as well and the afternoon sessions, your blessings upon them. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.